We're going to be in the book of Romans this morning, chapter 11, verses 17 through 21. But if some of the branches were broken off, and you, although a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among the others, and now share in the nourishing of the root, do not be arrogant toward the branches. If you are, remember it is not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. Then you will say, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. That is true. They were broken off because of their unbelief. But you stand, fa stand fast through faith. So do not become proud, but fear. Romans 11, verse 11 through verse 24. What was going on in the early church was a bit of a division. Yeah, believers in the body of Christ, some were Jewish by heritage, some were Gentile, non-Jewish by heritage, so some considered Israel their national identity, others considered uh, their national identity not connected with Israel, and there developed in some senses a bit of a division. And it's important as believers to understand what how do we look at that? And the, and the first thing that we're going to understand is there should be no division, but we need to understand from the gospel why there should be no division and how we understand the work of God among his people. And so this chapter is not so much talking about us as individual believers, but thinking about how we fit among the people of God and talking in categories of peoples who are believers, not Individual. So we're going to be looking this morning at our roots. What does it mean to be a believer in Jesus Christ among the people of God? And, and what are our roots? And what we really want to think about today is, is we don't want to forget our roots. Don't forget your roots. What does that mean to not forget your roots? Well, this is how it might happen. Somebody grows up in a, in a small town, maybe a rural community, maybe a typically a blue-collar community, and then this individual goes out and gets college education and experiences some success in their, in their professional career and now is living in the big city and is really important. And then when this individual comes back home, he makes sure everybody knows how important he is. And we would say to that individual, you've forgotten your roots. You may have forgotten, uh, mister. It was your upbringing here that might have contributed a lot to your success there. And we might say, you've forgotten your roots. You need to properly value uh, where you have come from. And as believers, that's what we need to do. We need to properly value where we have come from because that's actually going to provide some great insight into what it means to live as believers today. So don't forget your roots. First of all, Jesus finds you. Let me read Romans chapter 11, verses 11 through 15, and then we'll go uh, through this first part. Don't forget your roots. Jesus finds you. Here's what it says. Romans 11, beginning in verse 11. So I ask you, did they, talking about the people of Israel, did they stumble in order that they might fall? By no means. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. Now, if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? Verse 13. Now, I am speaking to you Gentiles. Inasmuch as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry in order to somehow make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. Verse 15. 
For if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? Don't forget your roots. Jesus finds you. He's talking specifically to the Gentiles here, and he's wanting the Gentiles to reflect on how Jesus came to be made known to them. Jesus came to be made known to to the Gentiles. God used the occasion of the Jews rejecting Christ as the Messiah. So the people of Israel had Christ in their very midst, and the people of Israel turned him over to Pontius Pilate, and Pontius Pilate crucified him on the cross, and the people of Israel, having anticipated their Messiah for thousands of years when he actually showed up, rejected him. And it was the occasion of this rejection. Now we're talking in broad strokes. Remember, we're talking about peoples. Did every person of Israel reject the Messiah? No. We talk about the people of Israel as a whole had rejected him. And it was in this particular occasion that the Gentiles then received, in, in, in a large number of people anyway, Christ as the, the Savior. So what was the occasion of the Gentiles encountering Christ? The people of Israel rejecting him and God using that occasion to bring the Messiah to the Gentiles. Why is this important? The Gentiles didn't find Christ because the Gentiles were awesome. Think of it this way. A guy's driving his car. He wrecks his car on a bridge. What a moron, right? Wrecks his car on a bridge. He's driving by himself, and his car is dangling off the bridge. Oh, no. Someone calls 911. The fire department comes out. They secure the vehicle, and then a couple of brave firefighters use rappelling gear, and they get out, and they bring him safely onto the bridge. He's, he's unharmed. Oh, good. Thank goodness, right? You're worried. And the news media is there, small town. This is a big story. Guy almost falls off a bridge. Cat was saved from a tree. Number of big stories that day. And they're interviewing this gentleman about the fire department saving him from near death. And here is sort of how his interview goes. He says, the first thing we need to recognize is how calm I stayed. I mean, really, when it comes down to it, a lot of people have been in a lot of different situations are dangerous. You will be hard-pressed to find a person who was calm, as cool as I was in that situation. In all likelihood, the reason the car didn't fall off the bridge was my ability in that moment to just be chill. So let's start with that. Secondly, notice how quickly the fire department scurried out to my car. They obviously are well aware of my charity work in the community. The call came in to 911. It's that guy. Oh no, we gotta hurry, because normally we go slow. We're going to use the lights and sirens. We're going to get there quick because it's that guy. He said, obviously, they knew about my charity work in the community. They knew if if my life were to be lost, where are all these various organizations going to get their funding? So they scurried right out. So, I mean, yeah, I'm grateful that they came. But obviously, they came quickly because it was me, right? And finally, he concludes the interview with this. He says, and let's just be honest, this was a great training opportunity for this fire department. They obviously are going to be more highly skilled. And the next person that finds himself in a similar situation, you know, I'm not going to expect much. Maybe a thank you card, maybe a gift card. That's all. Not a big deal. I mean, don't you find that offensive? And some of you, wait, I did that last week. (laughs) That's terrible. So this is the thing. This is how Christians sometimes behave. Why did Jesus save me? I mean, look at me. I mean, really, the question is, why wouldn't he? 
Right, somehow along the line, as Christians, we become awesome enough in our own mind, the reason Jesus saved us is where is he going to find somebody else like me? And remembering our roots as Christians is this. When did Jesus save us? When we were dead in our trespasses and sins. This is what we're going to have to recognize from this passage as the Apostle Paul is challenging Gentiles to recognize their place in the history of God saving people is humility. There is no place in the Christian life, there is no place in the body of believers for Christian elitism. Christian, I'm awesome-ism. Christian, I deserve to be saved-ism. There is no place for that. Remembering our roots is gathering our minds back to the place where we were saved and saying, Jesus saved a sinner like me. Can you believe it? That's where we remember our roots. Jesus came to the Gentiles not because he needed Gentiles. He used the occasion, in fact of the Jews rejecting Christ to bring salvation most profoundly to the Gentiles, to those who were not Jewish. And pay attention to what he says in this passage. Israel will not always reject the Messiah. A day is coming when Israel will once again respond profoundly as a people group to Christ as the Messiah for faith. Look at verse 11. Did, the, did Israel stumble that they might fall? By no means. In fact, their trespass was the means by which salvation came to the Gentiles. What is the result of Israel's rebellion? That Gentiles replace Israel? No. That Gentiles are more awesome spiritually than Israel? No. What is the result? God merely uses the occasion of Israel's rejection of Christ that the Gentiles might respond favorably to the claims of Christ. Does this mean all the people of Israel rejected Christ? No. Does it mean all Gentiles responded favorably to Christ? No. You know some, right? But what does it mean? It means God has used the occasion in the history of redemption to use Israel's rejection as a time for Gentiles to respond. We'll look at it more closely next week in Luke 21, 24. Jesus refers to this time as the time of the Gentiles. And he says, that won't always be the time. There will be a time when Israel will will respond uh, to the claims of Christ. Look at verse 12. He uses a logical argument to show us the humble place we find ourselves as Gentile believers. If Israel's sin, if Israel's trespass means riches for the world. Okay, if, if, if Israel's rejecting Christ means God uses that to, to glorify himself in saving Gentiles. That means God uses a really terrible situation to do something amazing, right? Now, here's his argument. If God can use something terrible to do something amazing, what would happen if something amazing happened? That's what he says. If their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? What he's saying here, if God can do something powerful through Israel rejecting Christ, What do you think it will be like when Israel comes together as a people and says, we believe Jesus is the Messiah? He's painting the picture of a glorious future at a time where where many people in Israel will be saved and imagine the work God will do during that time. It will be a time of great joy, which means we need to simmer down and get off our high horse. We think, like most modern generations, since we're the current most modern generation, we're the most awesomest generation. We're the smartest, most well-informed, the most spiritual, the bestest, 
I don't know what the right form of that is. And, that, and that's not the case. What we need to do is understand humbly. No, God has just seen fit to order things in such a way that we might respond to Jesus finding us. We didn't find Jesus because we're spiritually insightful, spiritually sensitive, uh, good-natured, ethically uh, mindful, uh, moral, high-minded, come from good stock. None of these things is why uh, we found Jesus. We found Jesus because he's nice enough to find us and rescue and save us. Okay, let's look at verses 13 and 14. I'm going to read them again. Now I'm speaking to you Gentiles, inasmuch then as I'm an apostle of the Gentiles. The apostle Paul's ministry is primarily to Gentiles. He says this, I magnify my ministry. Pay attention, because he says something weird here. You would think what he would say this, I'm the apostle of the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry, which is, I love doing ministry with the Gentiles, because I love it when Gentiles get saved. Wouldn't you expect him to say that? Like if he's a missionary and he's sending out his monthly missionary email, do you get those? Those are great. I'm not making fun of missionary emails. I'm making sure I'm not. I've got to be careful now, right? A whole bunch of Gentiles got saved. That's what we would expect. Please keep praying for the Gentiles. That's not what he says in his missionary letter. Well, look what he says. A whole bunch of Gentiles got saved. I think if enough gets saved, the Jews will get jealous and they'll get saved. Right, excuse me, Paul. Don't you just want the Gentiles saved? No, no, no. I want the Gentiles to get saved so much that some of my fellow Jews will be jealous of the blessings of God among Gentiles that the Jews will want to get saved. Well, that's just rude. Why, why don't you just celebrate the Gentiles are finding Christ, Paul? Because he understands the way God is working in history. Look what he says. I magnify my ministry in order to somehow make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. One of the reasons God wants to work in the lives of Gentiles is that his people, the people of Israel, might at some point respond saying, we see the glory of God and his blessings among his people. We want back in on that action. We want, we want, to, we want to participate in the work God is doing in the world today. And the only way you do that is by putting your faith in Jesus Christ for salvation. Verse 15 sort of sums it all up, and I just want to make a quick point here with this, if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? The hope here is that God will work so powerfully among non-Jews, among people who aren't of Israel, that the people of Israel re will respond in faith and we will see a revival like we've never seen before. He says, look, if, if, if Jews rejecting Christ means the world gets reconciled, when, Jew, and when the people of Israel respond to Christ, it'll be like resurrection of the dead on planet Earth. And he's, he's saying this is powerful. Let me make just a couple of observations here just to, well, really just to be annoying. That's what I do. We need to recognize as all believers, and, and those of us who are Gentile believers, this. We aren't in the kingdom of God because we're awesome. We are in the kingdom of God because Jesus is awesome. We aren't in the kingdom of God because we are awesome. It's because Jesus is awesome. And us being in the kingdom of God, those who are a Gentile believers, thus be us being in the kingdom of God, 
is not the arrival of the greatest moment of the kingdom of God. We'd love that. No, us being in the kingdom of God must be the greatest moment in church history, right? No, the greatest moment in history of God's work to save people is yet to come. It's not us. We have a part to play, but we need to be humble and say God would save people such as us, but we are just a prelude to the great event, which is the fullness of God's people coming to salvation. Let me sum it up this way. Because you, uh, you really want me to be annoying. I can see, when are you going to be annoying? You are not the point of your salvation. You are not the goal of your salvation. I'll be nicer, I'll put it in the plural. We are not the point of our salvation. We are not the goal of our salvation. There's a more primary goal. Number one, the glory of God in Christ Jesus is the point. The only reason God saves us is because it brings him great great glory, and he's just that kind. But we aren't the reason we are saved. The reason we are saved is Jesus finds us, and God is glorified to save us. God has always been and will always be the point, the goal of our salvation. And so much more is this. The goal of our salvation is also the salvation of others. And in particular in this passage, the goal of Gentiles coming to Christ and finding the blessing of covenant faithfulness of God in Christ is that the people of Israel might be moved to jealousy and pursue Christ uh, by faith. Don't forget your roots. Jesus finds you. There is a great place. We're going to see this in a little more detail in the next section. There is a great place in the Christian life today or a reminder today for humility. We tend to, as the distance of time from the moment we were saved, I don't know if you remember to that moment, if you were an adult or even if you were a kid, you, you come to the Lord and you realize, I need forgiveness. I have sinned and I need relationship with God and I've ruined it. And we, we find redemption in Christ and a lot of times in that moment, especially if you're an adult, you, you might have this occasion where you say, why would God save someone like me? Does, does he know what I've done? And then the years go by, we sort of clean up our act, and we've learned to either act a little more respectable or hide our sins better. Those are the two options for you. And then somewhere along the line, we go, oh, now I see why God saved me. I'm pretty good. I didn't see it back then. But now that I've been saved for a while, I realize, wow, yeah, actually, he ought to have chosen me. And it's in that forgetfulness of where we came from that arrogance creeps in. It is fine and good for believers like us to wake up each morning and say, God, I can't believe you saved someone like me, and thank you. That is a a great place of strength in humility. Jesus finds us. We didn't find him through our spiritual insightfulness. Okay, Um, let's look at the second section of this. Verses 16 through 24, don't forget your roots. Jesus came through Israel. I don't know if you've ever thought of this. Did you know Jesus didn't come through Israel merely because Mary happened to be Jewish and she was handy? Like, you know, God was like, well, okay, I got to send Jesus. Oh, there's Mary. Oh, she's Jewish, so that works. You know, it wasn't just like happenstance. This was all actually on purpose. 
the blessing of the world, the, 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 the blessing of the world through salvation in Christ is based on what God was doing among the people of Israel, primarily through the promises he made. So don't forget your roots. Jesus came through Israel. Let's look at why. Let's, before we get there, let's think about that guy who got saved from the fire department again. Because we like that guy, don't we? Well, maybe not. Here's the question we might ask. Someone called 911. Why did the fire department come out? It's your job. Right? I heard a number of people say it. It's their job. Well, who made it their job? Like, did some guys just build a house and put a red truck in it? And say, you know what? Fires break out. Let's go get it. No, what happens is a city like our city of Medford, they're going to set up a city charter, and then we're going to set up a city council, and at some point they're going to vote and put in place city codes. Some of those we like, yay, some of those, and we protest, right? One of the ones we like is the city sets up a fire department. We don't like that they put stuff on our water bill to pay for the fire department. We want the benefits of the fire department without paying them. It's not a big deal. Is that too much to ask? So we got a fire department, a charter, and the fire department charter or its rules say, you do these things. Someone calls 911, says, my house is on fire, somebody needs to send a fire truck, put out the house. That's the job. Okay, and there's, there's a thing that tells them what they're supposed to do. Like, you could try this. I'm not saying you should, but you could. Don't. I don't want to get sued. 911, hi, is it, I need the fire department, yeah. Um, my son's turning eight, and I'd like him to walk up the ladder. Could you send out the one with the tall ladder thing? What's the fire department going to do? They're going to say no, and Officer Bill will be to your house shortly to issue you a citation, right? But the fire department doesn't call, come out just because you dial 911. There's particular things where they come out. And they come out because that's the rule, and that's the promise they made. You could dial 911, and there's fire department guys available. We're going we're gonna to roll out lights and sirens. We're going to put out the fire help you in your medical situation. So the reason they come out is a promise is made among the city charter. That's what they do. So why does Jesus save us? Because he has to, otherwise you won't be fair. If he doesn't save people, people won't like him. If he doesn't uh, save people, everybody is separated from him forever. Uh, He has some sort of moral obligation to save people because he created everything. None of these are true. None of these are the reasons God saves people. Why does God save people? Because he promised to. And God keeps his promises. And guess what? He didn't have to promise to. But he decided to make a covenant to save people. And God always keeps his promises. So don't forget your roots. Jesus came through Israel, which means God always keeps his promises. Salvation is from Israel... Because Israel was the people who received the covenant promises of God. Look at it here in verse 16. Verse 16 is kind of a transition verse. It says, if a dough offered is first fruits, uh, let me read it correctly. If the dough offered as first fruits is holy, so is the whole lump. If the root is holy, so are the branches. Here's the, here's the illustration he's making. If you come to the priest with a dough as an offering, you take a bit of the dough and you give it to the priest. As an offering, first fruits. Is the dough you give to the priest holy? Yes, it is, because it's an offering to the Lord. What about the dough you keep? Is it holy? Yes, it is, because you've, you've made the first fruits offerings, so now this dough is set apart, and it can be used according to you, whatever you want to do with it. 
because you've already made the first fruit offering. So what he's saying is, at the beginning, if the beginning is holy, what continues on is holy. Then he adds another illustration. If the root of a tree is holy, so are the branches. So if a, the root of a tree generally defines what's going to be true of the tree. So if a tree's roots are holy, then what's coming out of the tree is holy. So he's going to continue the illustration about an olive tree. How do you become holy? You want to be in the tree that is holy. And what is the root of this tree? The covenant promises of God to the people of Israel. So God makes promises to his people... And to participate in the holiness of God, you have to join in with those covenant promises. And the way we do that is through Israel. And how do we do that today? Through Christ, who came through Israel. Okay? What are some of the promises God made to the people of Israel? Let's start even before Israel. Genesis chapter 3. He tells the snake, you will bruise his head, and he will... Bite the heel. Did I do it backwards? Yeah, lunch is coming, right? It's in the gym. Okay. He will uh, strike your heel, but he will crush your head. So he's making a promise to the serpent, and we participate in that promise. A son of the woman, see that the woman is coming, who will crush the serpent's head. When did that happen? End of the book of John. This little phrase, it is finished. Head crushed. It's over. Okay? Another covenant shows up a little bit later in Genesis. Genesis chapter 12. Genesis chapter 15, God's made, God makes a promise to a guy named Abraham. And he says to Abraham, you're going to have a whole bunch of kids, you're going to have some land, and the entire world will be blessed through you. How did God bless the entire world through Abraham? Through Jesus, who came through Abraham. So that was a, a, a covenant promise to Abraham. God also made a promise to Moses. For the sake of time, we'll skip that one. We'll get to the next one, my favorite one. 2 Samuel chapter 7, the covenant promise to David. What did God promise David? He said, your son will sit on your throne and his kingdom will never end. Who was his son? Solomon. How long did his kingdom last? It didn't have a not ending, it ended. I'm pretty sure he died, didn't he? Okay, so Solomon wasn't that guy. Solomon did pretty well for himself from what I understand, but he wasn't that guy. So how is the only way you can have a kingdom that never ends is to have a king that never ends? How do you have a king that never ends? Have that king be God who can't die. Or in the case of Jesus Christ, who can't stay dead. So Jesus had to come through Israel, had to come through the line of David, because he is the king whose kingdom never ends. So what we want to do is participate in all of those covenant promises because that's the root. And we don't want to forget our roots. Jesus came through Israel. So we put our faith in Christ for salvation, and now we are connected in with that tree, holy because we participate in the covenant promises of God. Look at verse 17 and 18. Some of the branches were broken off, and you, a wild olive shoot, were grafted in, among others, and now share in the nourishing root those covenant promises of that olive tree. Verse 18, here's the point of the whole message. You're wishing I would have read it earlier so you could get out, right? Do not be arrogant toward those branches. So here's the whole point he's driving at. Do not be arrogant toward those branches. If you remember... It is not you who support the root, but it is the root, the covenant promises of God, that supports you. So you got an olive tree, 
you know, around here, maybe you might have a different kind of tree, apple tree or a, a pear tree or some such thing. And some of the branches aren't being fruitful. So what you would normally do is you would trim those off because a non-fruitful branch is taking resources from the tree, but it's not doing anything. So you cut those branches off. And then what you do is you graft in branches that are more fruitful. That's the whole idea because you want those branches so you can generate more and more olives because olives are tasty. A little pimento in the middle. I like olives. I don't need to eat them on my fingers anymore because they don't make them big enough for my sausage-like fingers, but that's a distraction. I'm sorry, I'm thinking about lunch again. What you would normally do is you would go to another cultivated olive tree in your orchard and get a branch from that one because you know that one's going to be, have, have properly uh, been cultivated to be most fruitful. But what does he say here about the Gentiles? He says, we are cut from a wild olive tree. You would not normally do that. You would not normally go to a wild olive tree because that branch is not cultivated to be as fruitful as you would hope it would be. So we're seeing here uh, an illustration of God's grace. The Gentile inclusion into the people of God, the covenant promises of God is an act of grace. He takes these wild olive branches grafts them into this tree, and now they participate in the covenant blessings of God through faith in Christ. And he's saying, don't be arrogant. The fact that you have place in the people of God has nothing to do with you being better than the branches who weren't being fruitful. In fact, the point is, you ought to be humble because God found us as a wild olive branch and grafted us in nonetheless. And remember, we don't support the root. The root supports us. One, po- one pastor said it this way in an article I read this week. He said, listen, the kingdom of God does not rely on you and I. God, by his grace, includes us into the kingdom of God, the people of God. And he illustrates it this way. If the weakest Christian on planet Earth, think of who that is. You got them in your mind? Don't look at them. It'll be awkward. If the weakest Christian on planet Earth was the only Christian on planet Earth, think of that. The weakest one was the only one on planet Earth, God would have no problem establishing and flourishing his people. The root does not rely on us. We rely on the root, the covenant promises of God. We are merely to be humble and recognize God was kind enough to include us into his people of God. We've got to move along. Verses 19 20 and 21. You will say some branches were broken off that I might be grafted in. That's what you say. Well, Israel rejected, so the Gentiles are in. Well, that's true, he says. But they were broken off for their unbelief, not because God wanted awesome people. He's saying this. Listen, I didn't, those other branches weren't grafted or cut out because I wanted something better. God is not putting together an all-star team. He's like, oh, oh there's another guy over here who's better. I'll cut this guy off because I want this. No. They were cut off because of disbelief. Had nothing to do with you. God just uses the occasion of their disbelief to call us as Gentiles into the people of God. Therefore, look what he says at the verse, end of verse 20. Do not become proud, but fear. What's the, fe- the fancy theological term for that kind of a sentence? What's that called? That is called a command. That is not a suggestion. That is not a, you know, you might kind of rattle this around in your head a little bit, see if you like it. This is God saying to believers, do not become proud. 
Christ has found you. The life of the Christian is a routine day in and day out recollection of, I don't deserve to be in, but I'm so glad I am because Jesus saves people like me. Do not become proud. In fact, nurture and experience that healthy fear of the Lord. Verse 21, if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Talking again of the people, the Gentile people. He's saying, listen, if I grafted in wild branches, the Gentiles as a whole, if I wouldn't spare disbelieving people of Israel, will he spare disbelieving Gentiles? No. We can't paint God into a corner or obligate God in any way. Just quick reminder, he's not talking about individual Christians losing their salvation. He's talking about the work of God in people's in redemption uh, history. Okay, one last thing uh, that's kind of a bit of a prophecy. I'm hoping they didn't open the door so the smell of lunch is wafting in. Is it wafting in back there? You guys smell lunch? Okay, I don't even know what they're making. It's probably good. Here's a prophecy. uh, It's verses 22 through 24. Let me read it. We didn't read it earlier. Note then the kindness and severity of God. Severity towards those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you, provided you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. And even they, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in. They here is the people of Israel, for God has the power to graft them in again. For if you were cut from what is by nature a wild olive tree and grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated tree, how much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted back into their own olive tree? We see this throughout the scripture. We don't have time to go to all the different places today, but we would suggest this. It's pretty clear. There will be a day coming again when the people of Israel will respond to Christ by faith. And that will be a day of great and powerful and renewed revival. We ought to humbly recognize we aren't the culmination of the kingdom of God. The culmination of the kingdom of God is the glory of Christ in all who are his being called to his name and responding by faith. And a day will come when the people of Israel will do so again in much greater numbers than we see even today. Okay, three quick applications. They are uh, passages of scripture, which will be up on the screen and then, uh, then we'll have lunch. First one, you might want to jot these down. These would be good reading for after church or during church. John 15, 1 through 17. Everybody familiar with John 15? Fantastic section of scripture, one of the many people's favorite uh, chapters, John 15, John 17. These are good chapters. I am the true vine. My father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. Every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. And then you can read all the way to verse 17. We don't have time to do that today. Here's the job of us as believers among uh, the people of God, the tree of God, the covenant promises of God in the root. Here's the job. Abide in Christ by faith. Abide. Make our residence in the person of Christ by faith. Abiding is merely a recognition that Jesus is the source of our life and the goal of our life. And of course, day in and day out, this is something that's going to come better some days than others. But what we are called to do is by faith say, my life, the source of the richness and the power of my life comes from the person of Jesus Christ. And that is applied by faith. So here's the, the rhythm of the Christian life. Abide in Christ, bear fruit get pruned, repeat. Abide in Christ. 
We can do that in a number of ways. By faith, we read the scripture, praying that God would change our hearts through scripture. By seeking him in prayer, praying that he might, by interaction with him, repentance, faith, and worship, that he might transform our hearts to be more like Christ. We spent time together with other Christians so that we might recognize by faith that the world doesn't revolve around us. And we abide in Christ in all of these things. And in that, the Spirit of God, by his grace, bears fruit in us, Right? And because we're doing all the things God calls us to do, he, he blesses us. With what? Pruning. I just lost you, didn't I? That's the rhythm. Abide in Christ by faith. Bear fruit. And then he says, you want to bear more fruit? We're like, yeah. Does that mean you're going to give me more money? Ish. It'll be later, like in heaven. But for now, I'm going to prune you. And pruning is difficult. Nobody wants to get pruned that I know of and, and I'll say it this way because we're out of time look in your New Testament you can read, read your New Testament at the end of uh, you know, this afternoon it wouldn't take you that long the single greatest way God makes us like Jesus is through suffering that we might draw near to Jesus that's it and that's pruning it doesn't it's not misery it's not life is terrible it's not easy But it is the single greatest way God makes us like Jesus, and that is fruitful. So the rhythm in John 15, abide in Christ, bear fruit, get pruned. One other thing we might say about faith as we look at this is faith that saves is faith that endures to the very end. All right, Ephesians chapter 5, verses 14 through 21. I'm just going to read a couple of verses, uh, 14 and 15, but you might read all the way to verse 21 when you get a chance later. Here's what... The Bible says in Ephesians 5, Awake, O sleeper. That's not fair at the end of a sermon to read that, is it? That's not cool. It's just rude. Jeff gave me this verse, so blame him. Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Verse 15, Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. Here's what he's saying. Wake up. Our life is short. There's only so much time to glorify Christ in this life. Be intentional. Some of us are planning vacations this summer. You've got a week, maybe a couple of weeks you're taking away. You know, I only got eight days, or maybe you got ten days. We're going to go away. So what do you do? On this day we fly out. On this day we land. On this day we do this. And why are you doing that on your vacation? Why don't you just roll up unplanned and hang out? Because you want to make the most of your time off. Am I right? You don't want to miss a moment. In fact, we plan them so much, we come back, we need another week off to rest from the week off. But this is how we plan our Christian life. I'm just going to roll around and see what happens. The single most important thing that is true of the people of God is we are in the kingdom of God, and we just sort of hope it works out. It makes absolutely no sense, and that's what he says here. Wake up. Look carefully how you walk. Pay attention. What am I going to do today? I want to be fruitful today. I need to make best use of the time because the days are what? Evil. There is no way to accidentally be fruitful for Christ. That's not nice, but that's just the way it is. We got to think about it. We got to think about it. We got to pray about it. We say, God, what are you calling me to do by faith today? Because the days are evil. They're not for us. We're going to have to be intentional about it. Okay, let's close with Psalm 139, verses 23 through 24. Here's a prayer that you may or may not want to pray. 
Search my heart, O God. Let me read it properly. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. You comfortable with that prayer? Think about it. God, what I want you to do is just open season. Just rattle around in my head, see what you find. You sure you want Christ digging around up in there? Hey, good news, he doesn't need your permission. He's doing it anyway. But what we're doing in this verse is we're saying, God, I want you to be in there with me. I want to walk around in the dark corners, the hidden alleyways, the the closed off doorways. I want you to walk around with me in the nooks and crannies of my heart and mind. And I want you to look with me at the thoughts and meditations of my heart. Because the only way to have the the victory of the gospel and all the nooks and crannies of my heart and mind is to go there with Christ. And say, God, you can walk around. You, You got full access. Verse 24, see if there be any grievous way in me. Is there? Yeah, there is. Lead me in the way everlasting. What this is, an invitation not to, not to try and make God merely a box on the outside of our life that we visit from time to time. We recognize the kingdom of God happens in our hearts and minds. Where our hearts and minds are turned over to Christ, to Jesus, I want you to know what's going on. You already do. I want to know with you, and if there's a grievous way in me, Lord, I repent. Show me how to overcome. Prune me as you see fit. Because I don't want to forget my roots. Don't forget your roots. Jesus finds us, so let's be humble. And Jesus came through Israel. That means by faith in Christ, we participate in the covenant blessings of God because God keeps his promises, not because we're owed it. 